So, yes, hello, and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are that corner of the Geek Show that likes to deal with the good, the bad, and the bewildering of movies, either by, about, or starring pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to science fiction, from documentaries to hip-hop, and I've just mixed up my musical and cinematic genres, which does occasionally happen. <laughs> we, all have, we have a tally shot for it. <laughs> I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a writer for The Geek Show and for Horrified.com, the rich horror website. Uh, I also make films and I've been joined this week by... Aidan F. Hi, yet again. Uh, you can't seem to get me off box screen at the moment. It's true. I wanted to give you a month off and then I realised that I didn't have a Patreon show for May. So, yeah, have to move that one forward in the schedule. <laughs> Don't worry, listeners, I will take a month off, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> At least, yeah. So, we have got gathered here today to discuss Tulane Blacktop by Monty Hellman, which is one of those occasional films we do that has a double dose of music stars in the lead roles with singer-songwriter James Taylor as the driver, no relation to Ryan Gosling, and Dennis (laughs) Wilson as the mechanic, no relation to Charles Bronson or Jason Statham. (laughs) Is that it? Is that what, is that what you're going with for this week's intro? I've been busy. I, have, I, do, I don't have time to write absolute gold for every single one of these. Fair enough. <laughs> yes. Um, was this your first time watching Tulane Blacktop, Hayden? It was indeed, yes. Because mm. um, I caught it on the very, very old Masters of Cinema release um, that I have on my shelf. Right, yeah. I had seen it before when it was on Mubi, but I invested in a DVD for this show. Um, I think I like it slightly, I don't want to say slightly more on the second time, but the first time I saw it, I thought, oh yeah, I like that. That's one of those sort of cool, minimalist, pessimistic things that 70s American cinema uh, did very well. But I feel like Mm. I have more of a sense of the emotional pull of it on the second run. It's like that Onion headline, I appreciate the Muppets on a deeper level than you. <laughs> it's it's my Kermit the Frog. You can't have it. Yes. <laughs> um, no, I mean, because I, I had a very different reaction to Tulane Blacktop, to mm. put it safely. And it, it's normally, I mean, I don't want to undersell myself because I, I found it quite a cold film. Um, yeah. which I'm sure we'll get on to in a minute. But um, but I think we should go into the setup of this because it's obviously one of those quintessential like new Hollywood films that gets you know revered, revered an awful lot in circles from, well, you know, so, well, it's also a road movie, so I, I guess it makes sense just to cover an aspect of where it fits in that mode of American cinema, really. Yeah, the driver and the mechanic are involved in car races, and that's basically how they fund their life. They just sort of drive around aimlessly, looking for different races to participate in, and and that's what they do. It's a it's a kind of it's a very minimal, purposeless life. There seems to be nothing they would do if they made enough money on car racing. Mm. They would be completely stuck for what to do next. And one day a teenage girl gets in the back of their car and they get in 
everyone is kind of how, how would you describe the reaction when they first see each other in fact is there a reaction do that's anyone the thing. react <laughs> that's the problem <laughs> yes if, if yeah um because this is the thing with Two Lane Blackfoot, because it is such a film that is, I, mean, I don't want to say it's like, doesn't have any emotion in it, because there is just such a blank canvas to be painted all across the the way, like how you would discover America anyway. Mm. So it, it kind of fits in that era, I guess, that zeitgeist. And um, yeah, you, you can probably understand why I couldn't get much of a connection with it, because when I saw sat down to watch this, I just looked at my TV and was just like, uh, am I supposed to get something from this? This is quite boring, to be honest. It is um, very slow. Yeah, I will yeah. give you that for a movie about car racing. I think my initial problem is that any time the main characters start talking, you suddenly realise that they are car people. You know, capital C, capital P, car people. Mm. So there are like large stretches of dialogue in this movie where I just do not have a fucking clue what anyone's talking about, and I don't care either. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the thing because um, because it opens up on like this sort of race. It, it's it's a you know it's a opening the opening race at least. Mm. Um, it's stress free. Wouldn't you agree? Because it's very relaxed, even by racing standards. You know, yeah. you at least think like, you know, say Art and Senna, like in the corner, who, you know, is chugging along, like going a million miles per hour around corners and tight bends. Here, it's not like that. It's, you know, it's very slowly built up through editing and, you know, shot composition. Yeah. Um, and apart, and of course, apart from that, there's no dialogue. I don't think we even get the first line of dialogue until like, what, 25 minutes into the film or something like that? I think it, it's it's maybe slightly less than that, but it's true that that opening race sequence is basically dialogue-free. Mm. So yeah, it's it's very minimal. It's kind of in that mold of like turn of the decade road movies that were being made around that time. You can probably file it alongside Vanishing Point and Easy Rider, but it's its mm. own thing, I think. And yeah, I know, yeah, because. Didn't this come out the same era as Easy Rider? Or was that just Two like... years before? after, yeah. Uh, yeah. Easy Rider was 69, this is 71. Because there's an awful lot, awful lot of comparisons that I've read from people's reviews comparing it to Easy Rider. And I have seen Easy Rider as well um, years ago, so... Well, one of the oddest connections uh, comes through its writer, Rudy Wurlitzer, who you've mm. had priors with, haven't you? You've seen Rudy Wurlitzer stuff. Yeah, at, at some point on Pop Screen, and again, another appearance by me, we are thinking of doing Candy Mountain, but that's, yeah. this is probably like going to be in the back burner. But no, I, I've had experience with a little bit of experience, not not too much. Um, I have to bring up his CV again just to see what, what else he's done. Because haven't you... Oh, he did, did he did he write the screenplay for Walker as well? He certainly did, yes. I thought so, yes. I, I knew there was something in the back of my mind niggling at me saying, hang on, hang on, he's done something else, he's done something else. I mean, he's had a pretty great career, but this was his first big studio movie. I think he had been working a little on, and we're back to Easy Rider here, he'd been working a little on Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie, which was the directorial passion project that Hopper began work on 
uh, with the essentially the blank check that he got for Easy Rider being such a hit. And as big a hit as Easy Rider was, that's how big a flop the last movie was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I read I read a story that you know the studio were just giving people money if they had any connection with Hopper because Easy Rider had been such a smash and they couldn't work out why. And Wurlitzer had like a loose deal to make a film set in India. And he went from the Peruvian set of the last movie out to scout locations in India. Mm-hmm. And when he came back, it was like the whole production was just in complete chaos and the studio was coming in to try and shut it down. You just thought, I'm probably not going to get to make that Indian film, aren't I? Uh, so you <laughs> shunted onto this instead. Yeah. And he's a fascinating fellow, Werlexa, isn't he? Because yeah. he's just. Um... Because he seems to be cut from like a, a similar sort of flop as um, I don't know really like the, the screenwriters of those time like um, who's the guy who did the last detail again who wrote the last detail Robert Town yeah Robert Town yeah he mm. reminds me an awful lot of him like cut from very similar flops like awfully does like slices of American life kind of cinema. Well, it's uh, to me is kind of like uh, uh, he had similar roots into Hollywood as someone like Terry Southern where, like Terry Southern, he wrote what what used to be called these quote-unquote head novels, you know, very druggy, very satirical, very psychedelic. Um, And so when the studio realised that there was this mass audience for a film like Easy Rider that they didn't know how to access, uh, they called these people. But I think the difference is, is that Southern is just merciless with everything. Southern takes the piss out of everything, Mm. but... With Wurlitzer, there is this core, this kind of mystical quality and a, a deep sense of political injustice that he doesn't ironize. You can't entirely see it in Two Lane Blacktop, but it's definitely mm. there in Walker. Mm. It's somewhat there in Candy Mountain as well, but I, I think it's because um, it's one of those obscure films that. Again, I think we will cover for pop screen, just not right now. It's yeah. it's just it's, it's something that we we'll get to get around eventually. Yeah. Once it's become an active in joke on the show that we still haven't done Candy Mountain, we'll we'll probably do it. I think it's jockeying with Sorry to Bother You as our most mentioned film in terms of oh we've <laughs> got to do that movie one day. Yeah, eventually, but, but for now, uh, yeah, I keep suggesting the Graham like five million movies that we can do for pop screen and yes. need to stop. <laughs> but Wurlitzer was brought onto this as quite a, a late stage, and he was paired mm. with the director Monty Hellman, who has a, a way with these big archetypal American genres like the road movie in the Western, despite having, I think, the, a name that suggests a British World War I general. Hmm. Monty Hellman on the front lines giving Fritz a good licking. It's not the name that you expect for a, a chronicler of uh, roadside Americana, is it? It's a very odd career he's had. His, you know, yes, you've mentioned Ride and, Ride and the Whirlwind and the Shooting, which are like the two westerns that he'd done before Two Lane Blacktop. Mm. Um, but I've also looked at the CV just here. 1989, Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part 3, Better Watch Out. Yeah, it's a wayward career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey. <laughs> 
Well, the thing with Monty Hellman is that he was a graduate of the Roger Corman School, and a lot of his early credits are like monster movies and gothic horrors. And it's like, there's no shame in that. You could say the same thing for Francis Ford Coppola. But the difference mm. is that Coppola completely escaped that world and started to make big studio-funded blockbusters. And Hellman Jonathan, never quite yeah. did. Yeah, Jonathan Demme came from that school as mm. well, didn't he? Yeah, Tons yeah, of people was... did. Scorsese yeah. worked for Corman as well. I think any American director of that generation who is worth anything will probably have some Corman connections. Mm. Yeah. But like I say, Hellman, despite making a lot of films that are very, very well thought of, never quite got to that level where he was thought of as a, a, someone who exclusively directs art pictures rather than someone who directs a few art pictures. And then when he needs the money, he'll do Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. Better watch out. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, a strange career and a sort of self-sabotaging career as well. I mean, the film he did after this with Laurie Bird, who plays the girl in the back of Taylor and Wilson's car, was Cockfighter, uh, again, mm. with Warren Oates, who also appears in this film. Um, and I think, I think that is still banned in this country. Well, the Cockfighter? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I never realised this. No. Yeah, it's one of the longest-standing BBFC bands up there with like Freaks and Battleship Potemkin stuff like that. But unlike those, I don't think it's ever been overturned because it was on animal cruelty grounds. You see, and that's one. Oh right, okay. The yeah. BBFC has not liberalised in that regard. You know. Yeah, that that's the only segment that it is because I know that. Um... Uh, Criterion were trying to put out like a couple of Russian films out on the UK label, which mm. they've had to sack because um, you know the BBFC just wouldn't release them. I think Andre Rublev was one of them. Yes, War, War and Peace was another one, which is okay, and of course yeah. Come and See, and it's just like yeah, they're still not um, okay with that. But I guess that's fine because they're releasing Pink Flamingo soon, and you know, <laughs> yeah, I guess. So, yeah. so, I, so that's apparently fine, but not fine. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, Andrei Rublev has a very, very infamous horse fall in it, which has has always been a bit of a sticking point. But it, it's sort of, I mean, it's it's a bugger for someone like Hellman because he just released this, which is his essentially his graduating project after Corman University. Mm. It didn't do very well on release, but it still has a cult following, and ideally, the film after that should consolidate that success rather than being banned. Hmm. Anywho, yes, back on to Tulane Blacktop, because it's... Uh, hmm. Because hmm. I, I don't know what to make of it, to be honest with you. Yeah. And part of the reason why that is is because of the existentialism. Yeah. Um. That I, I guess it's Willits is doing, but, you know, I, 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 I kind of had it find it hard to believe to put all the blame in, like, one person's shoulders or anything like that. Oh, man, blame. But- Blame for existentialism. Blame Sartre if you're going to blame anyone, I'd say. But, but no, it's, it, I, I don't think it's him. And I, I think it might be just a group effort, personally speaking. But with, you know, James Taylor and Dennis Wilson, who are primarily not actors, mm. um, 
and I know their kind their performances are minimal on purpose. Yeah. But at the same time, that's all I see it as. It, I, I just can't get any enjoyment out of like people just looking into the distance and going, I guess we've got to go drive south. <laughs> you know, yeah. that kind of mumbly <laughs> thing. And it, it's just like, no, sorry, this doesn't do anything for me. It's it's funny. I, I'm not going to explain why this is, because I think as soon as you say it, you'll understand what's reminded me of it. But when you were saying that, I was just reminded that you really don't like Nicholas Winding Refn. <laughs> That's the reason why. <laughs> no, I, uh, yeah, if, if people know me, I, I really don't like the Nicholas Winding Refn, so hey, hey. I do kind of like that stuff if it's done right. I think it, it can very easily slip into being a pose or a shortcut to looking deep and significant. You know, when it's mm. done badly, it's kind of like the, you know. Nails the, on a chalkboard. Yeah. It's, it's like when, you know, you're at a student party and there's always some guy in the corner dressed in black reading a French novel that he doesn't actually understand because he's trying to, like, impress people by looking smarter than he is. And I should know because I was that guy normally, but mm. it, it is really annoying behaviour. I can accept that now. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And that's not me to say to demean Tulane Blacktop, because I do think there's qualities with it. I mean, it's 70s American cinema. I mean, it's like the golden age, yeah. if you ask me, of like the New Hollywood era, because, you know, you had the likes of Hellman, you know, doing something a bit different. You had, um, obviously, taken from a lot from, like, European directors, who I'm sure we'll get into, like... Yeah, it's very they... Antonioni, isn't it? I was reminded, you see, I couldn't point my finger on it. Mm. for a while just with all the glacial long takes of like this you know the side for the longest time and I, I just kept thinking you know this reminds me of a European director you know who could it be I mean it, it could be Brazon I guess but I, again I don't like Brazon for like exactly <laughs> the same reasons as yes. I don't like Reckon. Um and then it finally clicked it reminded me of Chantal Ackerman in a way oh that's good yeah and Ackerman's probably one of the only directors who does the, that glacial long take thing and does it well for me. I really like Chantel Ackerman. Yeah, I was going to ask what your feelings were on Ackerman, and I'm really glad you said that because I, I remember watching Jean Bielman, and that is hmm. normally the kind of punitive slow cinema that really rubs me up the wrong way. But I remember like looking at my watch at one point thinking, Shit, I've watched two and a half hours of this already. Yeah, I think that no, that it, it's probably because I guess they're also in like the documentary mode as well. Mm. And I think that's kind of the reason that I get from Ackerman because she just had like, yes, with all like the artistic framing, like the Ozu style framing that you see in Jan Dielman. And Jan Dielman is a film that I feel a bit about as well only because of the length really and that, mm. that's kind of it but it's a film I, I respect a lot it's it's not my favorite of hers but I can so, totally get the appeal um and with this it's kind of the reason why I, I say Ackerman is because of like you know the driver uh the mechanic GTO who's Warren Oates's character yeah and just the kind of like emotion that they get from him that, that that's obviously turning passionate inside, but on outside, they're just, you know, like blank. 
just completely blank towards each other. That's how I feel. Yeah, I, I wonder how much of that passion is genuine, though. I think there's a kind of deep respect for cars and there's a kind of nerdy fetishization of the details, but the car has a difficult place in these guys' lives because it's the thing they used to make a living, mm. but it's not getting them anywhere. You know what I mean? The only mm. thing that the car will do is get them to the next car race where they have to earn money to do another car race. And it's yeah. just this sort of meaningless cycle that they're stuck in. Yeah, it's interesting that because the driver, because I, I remember reading, there's a, a decent essay actually in the Masters of Cinema booklet. Mm. And um, the writer says that James Taylor's character almost feels lost when he's not in his car. And then mm. as soon as he like gets into his car, he suddenly becomes one. And I know that's deeply pretentious wording it like that, but you can kind of see you it. See like, it. Of, yeah, yeah. You do see it in a, in a way, kind of like how the singer-songwriter James Taylor is lost without his guitar or anything mm. like that. So, and, and that's interesting for in that way. Yeah. It's interesting. I didn't, uh, I had to do a bit of reading up on James Taylor uh, before we did this episode because he's not a guy I know a great amount about. And I was fascinated at how turbulent his life was with the sort of unhappy marriages and the drug addiction. And you think, man, he makes really laid back music. Imagine how chilled out he'd be if he had a quiet, happy life. You see, I knew James Taylor because I'm not a James Taylor fan either because I've never listened to any of his stuff. I, it's not because I, it's just simply because I haven't got around to it. That, that's mm. all I do. Um, see, I first came to aware of, came aware of them from uh, Sailing to Philadelphia, which is the Mark Knopfler solo album where he oh, does right. a duet with Mark. Um, and Mark Knopfler always has a soft spot, uh, spot in my heart because he was like the first artist that I ever saw live. Right. So, um, so we'll always have my respect for that manner, and um, and it's a lovely so it's a lovely duet that they have on that album. To be honest with you, um, and that and that's how I first knew about James Taylor. But I always bracketed him as like kind of like I don't know, kind of a John Cougar Mellencamp, like American singer songwriter who mm, might not be my taste, but you you know what? It's, as Graham was saying, it's very laid back, very chill. That honestly, I don't have anything against him. Yeah, I certainly don't. I just, I, I kind of feel like my musical taste can often get quite sort of laid back and adult-oriented rocky. And, you know, every time I go to YouTube, they're always recommending me a playlist called Take It Easy Rock, which I resent, to be honest, but I see what they're doing. Um, and James Taylor exists just to let me know that there is a point where I feel like this rock is taking it a bit too easy. Mm, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, there, there is a line I won't cross, and I think James Taylor is on the other side of that line for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But he wasn't, I mean, when I first watched this film, he was, certainly wasn't the name that attracted me to it. Uh, the name that attracted me to it was Dennis Wilson, because I'm a huge, huge, huge Beach Boys fan. Hmm, Yeah. And because, again, going on research, that uh, apparently Hellman apparently left it like three days before filming had begun to start without finding someone to play the mechanic. Yeah, so, so it was, you know, you're in a crisis. You get the guy who's never acted before. It seems hard to imagine what could go wrong, really. 
it wasn't until like one of his friends just immediately suggested Dennis Wilson for some reason. <laughs> Big car guy, apparently. That was the, the rationale behind it. Um, Dennis Wilson also had a unique status in the Beach Boys. I don't know if you know what this is. Mm-hmm. No, he, go was, on. he was the only Beach Boy who could actually surf. Which is ironic, considering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very ironic. Um, but yeah, that that's sort of. I think the rest of them enjoyed the surfer lifestyle, which is fair enough. I enjoy the surfer lifestyle too. I like the beach. I'm literally wearing a stripy short sleeved shirt. But you know, in terms of actually being able to surf, it was just Will, just Dennis Wilson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you don't need any other further reason than that, really. He, he definitely brought something to the band, uh, like the ability to actually surf. Um, but he was also the drummer, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, he was the drummer, and he also was one of the principal songwriters. I mean, most of the Beach Boys stepped up to the songwriting plate after Brian Wilson had his breakdown, because obviously mm. they couldn't rely on his songwriting anymore but dennis always contributed stuff to the albums uh he also managed to get one song on i think it was yeah 2020 uh one song co-written by one of his celebrity mates i don't know if you know who that was oh i'm dreading to guess now um the answer see, I'm is gonna say, yeah not good it's not a good answer is it donald trump it's it's not Donald Trump. It's uh, it's not that bad an answer. No, let's walk it back a bit. It's uh, good old Charles Manson. Ah, right. Okay. Um, yeah, that's even worse, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, in in his defence, Wilson rewrote the song so heavily that Manson uh, declared himself an enemy of Wilson's, which is. I mean, it's the right thing to do, but it's a bad enemy to make in a lot of ways. Mm-mm-mm. It's kind of weird how except Charles Manson pops up in like the weirdest of celebrity, you know. Completely, yeah. He seems yeah, to be cause, cause the for some reason, things. like yeah, it's the nexus of like that scene, and you know, you know, you're surrounded by the likes of from one end Neil Young to the other end Harrison Ford, <laughs> and then of course, you know, it's, it's really weird. And I guess yeah. that's the kind of the reason that, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was based on, really. Yeah, definitely. And, that, you know, there's that whole scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where Damien Lewis is playing Steve McQueen and he just goes through the party exact saying, oh, that's Roman Polanski, that's J.C. Bring, that's, you know, and revealing how many people just knew each other here. But yeah, Manson had written a song called Cease to Exist and Dennis Wilson rewrote it as Never Learn Not to Love, which Manson found unacceptable. Uh, The thing Mm. that I find funniest about this story is Manson wrote Cease to Exist after he, he observed tensions between Dennis and his brothers, Brian and Carl Wilson, and he wanted to write mm. something that would help them out. Imagine having a family dynamic so fucked that Charles Manson thinks he can step in and mediate. Oh, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a really difficult situation, isn't it? I mean, I don't even think I could, you know, describe it all that well, to be honest. I would have to be there at the time to witness it. 
It's very strange, isn't it? Because I, I don't know about you, but certainly when I was growing up, I had a picture of the Beach Boys that was, oh, they, they're the, like the sunshine band who sing about uh, little surfer girls and things like that. And the thing about their, car, their cars, of course. Um, and then you actually get into the Beach Boys and you think, God, the Rolling Stones wish they had a story as dark as this in their, uh, mm. in their arsenal. Yeah. Again, it, it's kind of like the other ironic twist because I never got, I never could quite get into the Beach Boys, weirdly enough. Mm. And I don't know whether it, it, it's simply because of their sound. It, it's just I, I'm, I'm a bit hit and hit and miss about, um, I guess that pop, surfer pop, yeah, uh, zone of music. And even just recently, because I've finally for the first time listened to Pet Sounds. Oh yeah, yeah. And Pet Sounds is. Pet Sounds is an album that I admire. I mean, there's some great songs on it. I mean, of course, you know, it's the one with um, Wouldn't It Be Nice is on it. And of course, I think it's... God Only Knows. God Only Knows, yes. Um, you know, a few songs. and um, But it, it's just nothing... It does really hardly much for me. And that's just down to my taste in music, because, you know, it can be sort of subjective, like your taste in humour. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I think it, it, it gets its hooks into you. It can be hard to see past that sort of stylistic element of surf pop because it's such an archaic form of music now. It's like the one aspect of the 1960s musical scene that just hasn't seen mm. much of a revival over the years. So it's hard to link it to anything. But I do think the songs are spectacularly well written and they are deeply deeply emotional oh, yeah. i yeah. mean I'm, I'm waiting for the day it just breaks my heart it's incredible no i i completely you know can't disagree on that you know you mm. know they, they definitely had that going for them um but combined in this film both james taylor and dennis wilson how do you feel they work as a pairing they work as pairing in that I genuinely wondered if there was a draft of the script where they were identical twins. Like, mm. I thought, <laughs> as, a, as a Beach Boys fan, I thought I'm going to be fine, have a pretty easy time telling these characters apart. And then they walk on with the exact same haircut and the exact same, like, blue baggy shirt. And you think, wow, literally every American man in the 70s looked like this. Mm. And I guess that works that way because, you know, um, they are used very very sparingly. How, of course, because there's not a lot of dialogue. There's hardly much emotion to their faces. I mean, yeah, you do get scenes of them, like obviously when they're drifting out on the roads, and um, you know, they stop by a diner, they eat breakfast there. You know, they just go back to their regular routine. It just goes back to what Brian was saying about, <clears throat> you know, how sort of, I guess, mystifying you know yeah. the American life is, but at the same time, it, it's kind of dull, isn't it? Well, kind of, yeah, but I think it's a, it's a purposeful kind of dullness. Like, I've seen some of, from the same period, I've seen some of Jean-Luc Godard's Dizzy Gavertov group Eva films, and if you mm. want a picture of the dullness of everyday life that succeeds in being very, very fucking dull, uh, that's a one-stop yeah. shop. But uh, I, I think there is an aspect to this and maybe if you don't click with it you will just find it boring but there is an aspect to this where i think it's very cool dullness and i think yes yeah yeah i i can appreciate that the film is kind of a critique but there is also part of me that would just like to be driving those big wide open american roads and wearing 70s fashions 
And mm, I, I think I would be yeah. happier being bored there than I would at any other time or place. Very vintage band logos as well, because I've noticed yeah. there's a lot of Dr. Pepper references dropped in this. <laughs> like, Dr. Pepper signs everywhere. I think the only other film I've seen with Dr. Pepper product placement is that there's that infamous moment in Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man film where Peter Parker practices web shooting with a big old can of Dr. Pepper right in the <laughs> front of the camera. <laughs> So yeah, that's the weirdest film double bill I can imagine having. Yeah, that is very weird. <laughs> um, but no, back onto this, because, you know, um, and that's not to say that there isn't drama in it, because there certainly mm. is. I mean, you know, they come across like all sorts of sites. They get pulled over by a police officer at one point. Mm. Yeah. Um, between like, I think it's like some sort of like uh, practice race between him and GEO. Uh, mm. The Warren Oates character, and they both get pulled over. Um, Taylor does a bit of a fib and say, um, yeah, he was going 90 over the limit. Yeah. Uh, Oates' his character. And then he just gets and then he just gets into his car and just fucks off. Yes. <laughs> so it's just like, yeah. So it's it's not without those trimmings, I guess. I will say, I mean, as much as I've said that the dynamic of Taylor and Wilson works for me in their minimalist acting styles works for me, I would be bored shitless if those two other characters didn't come into it. I could not watch those guys for a whole movie. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because um, we, we've mentioned Lovie Bird as the girl and Warren Oates as GTO. I, I said he was as great a writer as Rudy Wurlitzer. He's shit at coming up with character names, isn't he? <laughs> uh, GTO. Wait. So he's named after the car? Wait, what? Yeah, I guess. Some people in this movie really identify with their cars, or possibly he's named after the girl band that Frank Zappa managed. We'll never know. <laughs> but not literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Warren Oates is great, isn't he? Well, Warren Oates is just one of those actors who, you know, elevates everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But no, I, I would agree. If there's one. If there's one part of the film that I do get like some enjoyment out of it, it's definitely him. Yeah. Because I don't know, what, what's your association with Warren Oates? He's someone who's done so much stuff that I feel like everyone always has a slightly different thing that they always think of when they see Warren Oates. You see, now this is going to be the embarrassing moment where I'm going to have to look at my letterbox and discuss <laughs> what, he, what he's starred in that I've seen. Um Hang on. Oh, apparently I've seen three of his films. I For me, he'll always be SpaceX Awful Dad in Badlands. It's a small oh, role, but yes. he kills it. And then the Martin Sheen kills him. Spoiler. The wild, yeah, The Wild Bunch, I've seen him in. Ah, um, yes. That was years ago. I can't remember it from being... Yeah, like I say, I, I'd seen that years ago. I haven't seen it since, so I have a very vague recollection of it. Um, of course, The Border, uh, the Tony Richardson film as well. Oh, yeah. I've seen him in. And I remember him being quite good in that, as well as uh, Sleeping Dogs. Sleeping Dogs? Is that the New Zealand film with Sam Neill? Yes, with, with Sam Neill. Yeah, he's in that. Oh, 
help. Yeah, he is, isn't he? Yeah, I, I, I must have blotted that out of my memory because I spent the whole of Sleeping Dogs thinking, doesn't Sam Neill look young? It's just <laughs> sort of, it's cancelled out every other part of the movie in my memory. But yeah, you're right, he is in that. Hmm. And and those are the three films that apparently I've seen uh, with more notes in it. So that's my uh, uh, intake complete. I think he gives this movie a real jolt when it starts up because it's been, like I say, it's been a distinctive version of that kind of late 60s, early 70s road movie where it has been in the vein that they were in. And then he turns up and he's like a refugee from a Coen Brothers movie. Yeah, I guess. He's so garrulous and there's a kind of a desperation to him that I think the driver and the mechanic also have certain desperation to them, but they're too cool to admit that. Doesn't he want to get with uh, the girl as well? Everyone wants to get with the girl in this movie. Yeah, it was just ostentatiously horny, this film, in a weird way. (laughs) Yeah, it it was the time before, I think it was the Ford administration that that first established the horny police. So this is slightly before that. Mm. And because that's the thing, because, you know, uh, the driver, um, Mm. and this is one of the few things that scenes that, you know, that I kind of got a little bit of something out of, is when... um, James Taylor is, uh, you know, teaching the girl how to drive. Mm, yeah. And I, I think that's one of the minimal scenes that works well for me because, you know, he's going over it so kind of casually about how you need to put your foot on the clutch and then, you know, lift it up. And then obviously she stalls it. And yeah. then towards the very end of the scene, he, he goes in for the kiss as well. Mm. So it's just like, you know, th- th- there's something about it that I, I quite like, actually, and I, I can't quite put my finger on it. I think there is a tenderness to that scene and tenderness is something which is not in great supply in the rest of the movie. Like it's not a brutal Mm. movie. It's not a violent movie, but everyone is very good at concealing their feelings for the most Mm. part. In fact, the most, you know, violent thing that happens in this film is like a road accident. And, you know, this is something that this road accident happens off scene. So you don't see the actual uh, crash, but, um, you do see like the aftermath of mm. it, and um, it is described in. I can't remember. It's like somewhat graphic detail, but you know, like a passerby saying like he was driving on the wrong side of the road. There was nothing I can do. Um, and that's like the most violent thing you get from it. Apart from that, it's incredibly relaxed. The first thing you see of that road accident, you've just reminded me, is there's like a cloud of smoke or steam that emerges before you see Mm. the wrecked cars. And I I didn't realise this, I didn't spot this on the first time I watched it, but that's also the case with the road accident in David Lowery's film, A Ghost Story, and that must be where he got that Uh, from. Yeah, I faintly recall that. Yeah, that's a very good film, actually. Yeah. It's the one that turned me around on Lowry. He's genuinely one of my favourite directors now, but it took me a while to warm up to him. Well, favourite, mm. like, current directors, at least. Mm. Yeah, and, and Lovie Bird as the girl, I think, is such a, a raw nerve of a character, and she really puts it in, into a different orbit for me. Mm-hmm. How so? I think there were a lot of those kind of 
abrasive kind of child woman characters in American films of this era, you know, like Mackenzie Phillips's character in American Graffiti. And they're always kind of interesting because sometimes, on some levels, they are kind of a male fantasy. You know, they are a very dodgy male fantasy about a young, mm-hmm. innocent girl who's also like a hellcat. Um, but I think there is a, an element of genuine pain, an, an element where the girl is genuinely lost that comes from Bird's absolutely horrible life story. Yeah, she's yeah, yeah. Into this. Because I'm j- I, literally, I've clicked on her Wikipedia page, and Jesus Christ! <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I, I I read it because I was wondering, you know, why the hell have I not heard of this of this actress before? Because I think she is so good in this. And her mother died by suicide when she was a child. She like mm. ran away from home multiple times, much as her her character does here and she died by suicide when she was 26 the same age that her mother was yeah, that's um, really yeah you do question whether that was and you know obviously not to get you know into the grimness of this the situation whether that was intentional or was not. it conscious yeah absolutely yeah, yeah yeah and i think that's what gives it that that element i think you could write that part and give it to an actress who identified less with it and maybe you would just be seeing the kind of dodgy a group of guys wrote this character aspects to it but i never doubted that the girl was real which is amazing because she's Mm. just called the girl she is introduced just getting into a stranger's car and letting them drive her off which is something that you know I don't want to generalise about what women do and don't do, because there's a lot of women in the world, but they don't do that. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um... But there's there's something in her performance that makes me believe in that as part of a, a, like, a psychological truth. It's like, when they're driving away too, she just like casually goes, you guys aren't like Zodiac killers or anything. And you think a sensible person would have asked that before they drove off. But, or got into the car, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it feels consistent in her hands. She makes it feel genuine rather than just a, a contrivance. Hmm. Yeah, and those are the big thought that comes, you know, come up on this film. I've just realised by clicking on this that Harry, D- Harry Dean Stanton is also in this movie. He is, yeah, credited as H.D. Stanton. I wonder when he stopped using that. Mm, interesting that isn't it yeah yeah he plays the gay hitchhiker who comes on to gto which is great i mean oh yeah i mean harry dean stanton come on what a man yeah yeah a legend (laughs) i think you probably didn't recognize him because it's like the only screen appearance i've seen of him where he isn't just comically old looking (laughs) <laughs> yeah, not, I think that's he's not yeah. fresh faced, I guess, but he doesn't look like a thousand years old like he normally does. That's probably the reason why. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's true. That is very true. Because I was previously of the opinion that Harry Dingstant is one of those guys who didn't look young even when he was young. You know, you look back at something like Alien or Repo Man and he looks middle aged even back then. Uh, but yeah, he, he is. Uh, he actually looks like a guy who's just starting out acting here, which is what he was. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but no, it, it's a film that I feel cold about, uh, Two Lane Blacktop. I think, you know, it, it, I think it just comes down to, like, personal taste. Like, I just couldn't quite get into it as much as I would like to have done happened. And that's kind of strange, because the road movie, I get a lot of enjoyment out of, whether that would be, like, say, the aforementioned Candy Mountain or Paris, Texas, which mm. I think has a lot more of an emotional kind of hook to it. And for me, Two Lane Blacktop just didn't quite have that hook. It's uh, funny, yeah, because I, I, I corrected myself in my head there. I was about to say, oh, I'm surprised you like Paris, Texas, because that also has a lot of cold, silent characters. And then I thought, yeah, but it's building up to the scene in the booth, right? And yes, exactly, yeah. And in Tulane Blacktop, there is no scene in the booth. There is no scene where these guys crack and reveal something of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think I honestly would have preferred that. Mm. But, I mean, had it gone, like, say, like, you know, the Chantal Ackerman way, like, say, yeah. um, like a Jean Dielman, I mean, I, I would dread to think like a, like a, like a four-hour cut of it. <laughs> a a trip stuff. across America in real time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but no, it, it gets my admiration for that, but it, for me, it just doesn't build anything, and um, yeah, and, and, and that's just my sticking point with it, really. The road is if you will, A Road to Nowhere, which is the title of Monty Hellman's last film released in 2010. Oh, yes. Mm, mm. Mm. Um, We haven't talked about the ending yet, either. Yeah. Because let's talk about that, because it just, it ends abruptly. How, and I I guess, you know, and that's the other memorable thing about it, because it just ends in, like, Jim Taylor gets into his car, drives off for, like, another race for money, and then mm. all of a sudden it just stops. And then the image just burns. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess, you know, part of me thinks like, you know, maybe he took a little bit of an element from Persona, you know, being my Bergman film. Oh, yeah, where it yeah. Does, does like an awful lot of things like that, experimentally wise. But then, then I also thought Stan Brackage, weirdly enough. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, very sort of, you know, people that I could think of and whose style, like, concerns, like, the, you know, the format itself. Yeah, I think the, the ending, you could go for Kiva Starmie. You could say it's kind of like a rough draft of the ending of Taste of Cherry, I guess. But um, mm, Yeah. I still, I still, yeah, I still have, embarrassingly, I still haven't seen any Kiva Starmie. I don't know if you're going to like him because there is a lot of silent car driving in those movies as well, but they're worth yeah. trying just to see where you fall. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think maybe that is one of the elements where I would say Hellman is struggling to match these kind of European directors these influenced by because there are plenty of films by Antonioni or Truffaut which end with the the characters feeling a kind of hollowness and blankness, but they're also iconically blank. You know what mm. I mean? I think maybe yeah. this does need an equivalent of the 400 blows freeze frame or the tracking shot at the end of the passenger to really underline what it's doing, and it, it maybe doesn't have that, I guess. Mm, yeah, I guess so. I mean, the thing is, is that I'm a huge Truffaut fan, mm. so, weirdly enough. And, um, and I guess That's not weird, that... it's great. Yeah, Truffaut's great. I mean, it's, it's largely because, you know, they're, they're, I don't know, there's just such a larger-than-life personality to him that I've mm. always found accept, acceptable. With this, I don't know, it, it's just um, 
I guess it, it just abruptly ends, I guess, for like Elman's sake, for an artistic reason, it's there. You can get a reading out of it, certainly. But then again, I mean, you know, it, it's just like the ending of a film that um, I guess is just memorable in its own way. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think there's an element in this generation of Hollywood where people are doing things because no one had done them before. And that's mm. kind of fun and it's certainly admirable. And sometimes that leads to completely iconic experiments. And sometimes it, it leads to things that maybe could be a bit better. But I don't know, like I say, I, I, I found a bit more in it on the second viewing and I'm I'm looking, I, I won't go back to it straight away, but I'm looking forward to watching it again. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, I think that's about covered everything, right? Mm, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. So, if you enjoyed that podcast, we give a bonus episode out every month on our Patreon, as we have hinted before, along with a lot of other goodies, including my Doctor Who reviews and some new features that Rob is busy thinking up that might have launched by the time this goes out. I don't know. I can't see the future. I'm not some crazy time man. Uh, but <laughs> until then, uh, I've been Graham. I've been Aiden. And we'll see you next week with more pop screen. Thank you.